0: All right, so last week um, we were kind of talking through the idea that they were taken into captivity and the brightest leaders were taken. Jeremiah wasn't. We spent a little time in that. And um, This week, we're kind of coming into this space. There's been 400 years where um, God wasn't absent, but nothing was recorded of what God was doing. We don't at least have any teachings of that time, really, um, that we would call Scripture, right? So a lot of people call it the silent years, but to be fair, God was never silent, but he just definitely was working more behind the scenes. And so as we come to this week, uh, I kind of titled The Unlikely Hero because Jesus came in such an unlikely way. But before we get into that, let's kind of talk about what happened during this 400-year period of time while Israel was in captivity and while they were kind of like reeling from the, the fallout of that. And so, like I said, God seemed to go quiet. Um, Israel was able to return to their land under the Persian rule, but everything was really, really different. And we kind of talked through that a little bit. They were still under um, other nations. They were still trying to rebuild things, but it was really not the same. The culture started coming back. They, they had their land. They were growing. And what ended up happening during this time is they became an expectation. There was this longing for the Messiah in a way that had never been. Even though the Messiah had been, that the Savior was going to come, the seed from the woman, this prophet like Moses, this promised son of David, all of these things had been promised because they had their own land and things were good. They weren't looking for the Messiah. So now that they're in captivity, that happens. And so they're looking not only for the Messiah, but they're looking for the kingdom of God to come. And so in doing that, this this idea that they believed, they came to believe that the Messiah would be this conquering, ruling king like David, that he'd come in with power, and he would free them from these nations and establish the kingdom of God on, on earth. But what they came to understand, which is true, is that they were taken in captivity because of their disobedience to God. And so they go, okay, so because of our disobedience, we have been taken in captivity. Therefore, for the Messiah to come, we need to be obedient. So then they're going, well, we have all these laws, right? So we got to figure out what these mean. So just a little side note. What do we see, the theme that we've seen from the very beginning come back into play? We're going to see defining good and evil. On human's terms, defining good and evil coming back into play. And so that's what we see that Israel people, Israelite people do. They go, hey, we want to obey God. These are the commandments. So what does it mean, for example, when it says honor your father and your mother? What does that mean? We, we need to have laws that define how we honor our father and mother so that we can make sure that we obey right? Or what does it look like to keep the Sabbath holy? What does work look like? How far is too far to walk? How much is too much weight to carry? Right? And so they start f- defining more and more laws to define the laws. Like, What does it look like? What is idol worship? You know, like, is it an idol? Like, even to the point of like, what if food is sacrificed to idols? Like, there's these, all of this stuff came down the pipe of of what does it look like to obey God? Well, that caused the religious leaders, the rabbis, to rise in prominence in the culture to the point where they believed politically for them to have this place, this prominence in the world, to have the kingdom of God come, they had to do everything right. It caused the religious leaders, therefore, to become the political leaders of the land. And they grew in prominence, and rabbis, and so then they, these different rabbis would have different takes on the law, and they'd form more laws on the laws, and so different sects kind of grew apart, like these different groups of people, and to the point where, in Jesus' time, there was two main parties, the liberals and the conservatives, it hasn't changed. There's the Sadducees, a little more liberal, and, they, and there was the Pharisees, and they were the ruling people, 70 they were, that was the Sanhedrin. It consists of these two main parties, and like any point in history, when you relig- when you mit- mix religion and politics, it never works out. So, this is the scene that Jesus is coming into. The frustration, though, had grown because year after year, the more they tried, the more they tried to dial everything in, the Messiah still hadn't come, and their expectation of what the Messiah would be had grown and grown. And it almost had morphed into something completely different. So then the Messiah comes. Jesus rolls onto the scene. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the, the promised Son. He is everything that they thought, except he was born in a barn and put in a feeding trough when he was a baby. His birth was announced by angels, but they announced the shepherds. Like his descendant, he's a descendant of David, He was descendant of a king, but he was born of this poor couple. They lived in this outskirts of this fishing village, and he was a carpenter, and he did this for like 30 years. So his mission begins, and he's kind of ordained on his mission, but he's baptized by a guy that everybody thought was crazy. And then he chooses this circle of friends and future leaders of this new kingdom that he keeps talking about, but they're fishermen and zealots and women, heaven forbid. Right? That was his inner circle. So he goes out to seek citizens to, to be a part of this new kingdom. And it's the outcasts, and it's the prostitutes, and it's the tax collectors. And it's the, the fringe of society. It's the poor. He starts healing people, and he's touching lepers, which is like, you can't do that. And he's telling everyone over and over again about the kingdom of God. But he never takes every opportunity he sees control of the kingdom, he rejects. So the religious leaders are at a loss. They're like, is this the Messiah? How can this be the Messiah? What's this kingdom that he's talking about? What's going on? Like, the frustration of the leaders, like, I try to put myself in their shoes. Like, they were so confused. And no wonder they were like, this cannot be the guy. Nothing seems to be lining up. And obviously we know, we're going to look especially next week, next week how that ends, but I want to touch a little bit on the idea of Jesus being in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is something that I never saw a lot of, in, even though it was all over scripture growing up. I don't know if it's a church culture I grew up or what, but as I started um, trying to understand this, I see that the kingdom of God plays really is a part of the gospel message. Right, Even the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Matthew, and the gospel of Luke, and Jesus keeps telling everybody, repent, believe the gospel, and I and I never put two and two together that this is part of that, because Jesus was telling everybody, repent, and believe the gospel, and yet he hadn't died and rose again yet, so what does that mean, right? The gospel, the good news, the proclaiming of this new kingdom was very common language back then. We're going to look a little bit more in the next few weeks as we look at the gospel, but The kingdom of God, Jesus mentions, or the kingdom of God is mentioned over almost 50 times in the book of Matthew alone. And we know that it's, like I said, we're going to see it's a huge part of the story of God. And for us to understand the kingdom, we kind of got to go by some of the things that Jesus said. Jesus talked about it quite a bit, but one of the clearest, I think, definitions is in John 18, 36, when he's talking to Pilate, he says that my kingdom is not of this world If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So we know that it's not of this world, that it's otherworldly, that it's a spiritual thing, but we also know that there's something about it that's taking place right now. And so I think that's sometimes where the confusion is. Because even Paul, in Acts chapter 19, when he was preaching to the Ephesians, it says that he entered their synagogues and for three months spoke, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. like That was like the, the crux of his message. And so the idea of the kingdom is there is this aspect where it's, it's not fully realized yet, not fully present, but yet at the same time it, it is take, we're participating in it right now. And so back then when a king would come and conquer a land, he would send heralds out and they would tell the good news of this new king. They would evangelize. And so, with this idea, what we have here is the kingdom of God is coming, and Jesus is the king, and with that, it's, it's beautiful because as they're expecting this physical human king to come, Jesus is that, but he's so much more. And the reason why I think that it's so frustrating for these religious leaders is when Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, because it was otherworldly, it was so backwards from everything that they expected. It was so backwards. He was saying stuff that made no sense. Like, he would come in and say, yeah, you heard it was said this, but I say this, right? Like, he kept raising the bar of righteousness, which is just insane. they had already made these rules, and he's like, yeah, that's great, but there's this hard aspect that you haven't even considered. So, like, your standard isn't even high enough, which is scary. But then he'd come on the same part and say, listen, in order to be great, you need to be the servant of all. He was raising up servanthood over, like, dominance, which is backwards for the culture, definitely for the conquering Messiah. He was in a space where he was talking about the first should be last and the last should be first, that there was, no seat, like, there was no sense of prominence. There was not, like, a hierarchy. The first and the last were on the same page, that everyone, the poor, the outcast, the king, they all had the place at the table. It's a kingdom where the weak is made strong, And the strong is often not even used. Even in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking, he says, you know, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things, the insignificant things. So God brings this kingdom into place where he's using weak and the unqualified and he's calling the people that most of the places in society don't even consider and he's bringing these people in and he's calling the powerful if they would like. Into this kingdom that's taking place in the world, that's a spiritual kingdom, and it's functioning very different than everybody's standard. And he proclaims this new way. It's essentially what we see Jesus doing: is proclaiming a new way to live as humans. Really, the way that God always intended this this key, this place where God is king, and we're living in a way of love and preferring others over ourselves, and all this stuff. It's it's was gnarly. And I think for us, it's even gnarly, even though we hear it a lot, especially as Christians. But Jesus demonstrated this in his life. He demonstrated it in how he chose his followers. He demonstrated it in how he cared for his followers. He demonstrated it in how he participated in culture and who he associated with and all of these things. But another thing that was cool about this idea of, when I say the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God, that it's something that's coming, but it's something that we're, it's presently here is Jesus was giving us tastes of the new kingdom. Every time he healed somebody, he was undoing the consequence, essentially, and the effect of sin, even if it was for that moment. He was saying, like, in this moment, essentially, this is a taste of the kingdom that will be realized one day when I come. I'm undoing this. I'm I'm touching leprosy, and it's fleeing. I'm healing people. I'm I'm taking the, the nature, the storm of nature that is ravishing us. I'm able to control that. Like, I am putting things back to the way they were. And so it wasn't just this relational aspect, but it was like undoing the brokenness of the world. And one day we know that will take place. But Jesus was giving us a preview of that. And he's doing all these things, and it's even causing more confusion because the Pharisees and this, and the Sanhedrin Sadducees are looking at this going, okay, this guy is doing everything backwards. But we cannot deny his power. He's doing things that we doesn't make any sense. He's healing people that we can't deny. Like, we, these are real, like he has power and I can't put it together because he doesn't meet the expectations that we have. How we see God supposed to be working. And so... That's the kingdom, but with that comes the king. And he is the promised son of David, which is, I think, for many of us, it, all of us that have been walking with Jesus is, is awesome. But he's better because Jesus still lives, right? He's still the king. He's at the right-hand right throne of God, living to make intercession for us, and so he's a better king. He's still in control. He's still working. He's the prophet of Moses, essentially, that Moses promised to come. But he's more than that. Because where Moses was meant to be the Word of God, to communicate the Word of God to the people and communicate the people's heart to God. Jesus is the Word. Right? John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is better than Moses, the prophet that they were expecting, because he's he is the literal Logos, word of God, come unto earth. But on top of that, he is better than just this representative of God because he's the express image of God. So now we get to open the Bible. Colossians 1, 1.13 Talking about Jesus, says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the exact, image means exact copy, like photocopy, like the exact image of God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible dominions, thrones, uh, or rulers of authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head and the body of the church, and so forth. He is the image of God. And so where Moses would represent God to the people, the actual image of God, God himself came down and was communicating God's heart. When what was crazy is, God was, or Jesus was, imaging the Father, and what He was imaging didn't line up with their expectations of God. Which is so crazy to me that it's so easy, I think, for us as human beings to get this own, our own ideas of who God is and how God's supposed to work. And even when the express image is there, saying, "No, actually, this is this is how God loves, and this is how God communicates, and this is how God works, and this is what God's about," it's different.
1: They're like, "Well, that doesn't line up with what I think,"
0: right? He was better. The reason is because it was God himself, right? What's crazy is they had these promises in Isaiah chapter 9. It says the Messiah would be called the mighty God, everlasting Father. In Isaiah chapter 7, 7, it says Messiah would be called the Emmanuel, the God with us. Jesus was God with us. Where Moses was leading these people out and trying to bring them to this promised land and failing in the midst of it, God himself came to live with us. And what's crazy is, is where he is the image of God, like in, in re- representing like the idea of Moses, what I find beautiful is that God called human beings to be image bearers of God. That was our first and purpose as humans, is to image God. And of course, we can't do it. We fail and sin and all of this stuff. Jesus also then, as, and his humanness, as he's 100% God, 100% human, and his humanness becomes the true image-bearer, the, the true human experience, the true image of God as humans were intended to be. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 through six says, In their case, uh, the God of the world has blinded their minds, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as his servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. One day I'm going to teach this passage because it is like the richest probably few verses we'll ever find. But for the exact purpose of what we're talking about today, if we saw imaging God as this idea of reflecting his glory as we're pointing people back to God, as we're pointing each other back to the Father, as we're reflecting his goodness, we see that Jesus is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Like Jesus was perfectly imaging God. He was perfectly pointing creation, us, back to the Father. And in doing that, it was essential because God had established a standard of living, a standard that humans had to uphold to be in relationship with him. Early on, he didn't have to do that because humans were sinless. But God had to establish a standard of living. I remember, and I've mentioned this before, I remember growing up, always hearing, you know, God doesn't expect perfection. He just, you know, He wants progress. Like nobody's perfect. God doesn't. It's, that's not the most important thing. We just need to be working towards something. We need to have progress. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. I heard it all the time. That's actually not true. It's actually about perfection. God demands perfection. That's what he says. He demands perfection. The standard to be in relation with God is perfection. But obviously we can't do that. So the image of God, the true image bearer of God, Jesus, did it. He lived perfect. He did every standard of requirement that God demanded humans to do to be in relationship with him, he did it all perfect every moment of every day. He lived the life that is impossible for us to live. He lived the life we can't. He was the perfect human. He fulfilled God's perfect standard. But also with that, there was still an an aspect of, where humans had to pay the consequence of sin. God, being just, can't excuse things. We'll look at more of this in a couple weeks, but he can't just go, oh, that's okay. Oh, you murder people? Fine. You're fine. You're good. Right? Like, we would be enraged at the injustice to let the guilty go free. You can't have that. God, being just, had to punish sin. And it had to be human beings because we were the offenders. We offended God. And so the perfect human also then was the perfect sacrifice. And where previous sacrifices, as, though, as they were pointing us to Jesus, would have to be repeated over and over and over again because we would keep on sinning over and over and over again, The perfect sacrifice, the true human, the true image bearer was able to die once and for all, to not just cover our sin, but to forgive all sin. All sin, all over the world, for all time. The penalty was paid once. True forgiveness. Like, for us that hear this all the time, this can be very... uh, common. but the idea of knowing and functioning in a place of forgiveness, of being right with God right now, being right with God and, and acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done and being fully forgiven because of what Jesus has done, it is it, it should, change how we see ourselves and others and it should change how we live i heard this every day it feels like every growing up and it became so common that it didn't affect me because what i didn't i knew it didn't affect me as much is because i lived as though i had to earn god's favor i had to live up to god's standard and if i didn't he was mad at me or he was disappointed in me or he rejected me and that transferred to how I lived with other people I had to live up to their standard and when I did it as it, it, it's like this k- weird connection between human relationships and our relationship with God and sometimes that's put on us that's not it's not fair right like if if my um, pastor or family or church is saying you don't if you don't do this then this is how you treat people if they're not living up to your standard. This is, how you tr- this is how God's treating you. Like, that's not, I get it. It's because this world's broken. But that isn't how God intended it. Jesus truly did it all and is still doing it all today. We are right with God right now because of what he's done. Because if we don't remember that and are reminded of that, and that's why I do this, you know, every week I'm trying to, because we have to be reminded. Because so often, if you're anything like me, I forget it so quickly, and I go back to this idea of trying to earn God's favor. And when I do well, God is happy with me, and when I do bad, God is disappointed in me, and then it bleeds over into how I treat other people. And then what ends up also happening, just like it did for the Jews, is I start having these expectations of how God's supposed to work and how he's supposed to function and how he's supposed to treat me. Because when I'm doing well, I better be blessed. If things are, if I'm, if I'm doing well and why is these, all this bad happen to me, if that's going on in my heart, I've, I have found, that's because my expectations of how I saw God was off. Because Sometimes God allows things to go on to make us more like Jesus. I mean, that verse that all things work together for the good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, man, it's on the t shirt. But the verses right after that is saying that the good that God is working out, he it says, it's a bunch of things, and then it says, so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. The good, God sees good as making us more like Christ. That's the good he's working. And I know that we have our own definition of good and evil. And I get that. And sometimes things that seem... So there are a lot of evil things. And the beauty of God is that he's able to redeem the evil and make it good. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. But it doesn't make it any less painful. But God is not absent. And he's not not working. And so we must be reminded. And as long as I'm up here, I will try to remind us. Because if we don't, we will treat people differently. We will lay those expectations on the people, our friends, our family, our neighbors, whoever it might be. We will demand that they live up to our standard because I've been living up to God's standard. We have to be reminded every moment of every day, at least I do, maybe you're you're known as much as I do, but is that Jesus alone makes me acceptable to God. Jesus alone pleases the Father. Jesus alone paid for my sin. And Jesus alone is punished. We don't punish. We are not going to be punished. Jesus was punished. We don't deserve punishment. We deserve it, but we're not getting it. And God's heart for us now is that of inviting us in. Jesus alone makes me right with God. Jesus alone makes me worthy. Jesus alone gives me value. When we function in this, we don't need others to give us value. We want it. It's nothing wrong with that. That's good. That's human. But we don't need it. Like, if I don't get it, I'm not going to die because I'm loved by the Father because of Jesus. So as we (coughs) are reminded and function and believe in this space and Live that out. It has a profound effect on how I live. Because now, because I'm coming from a space of being loved and valued and made right with God, I respond by wanting to do good. Wanting to obey. Wanting to please the Father. Not because I'm wanting to do it because, because if I don't, I'm, I'm not pleasing. No, because I am. I want to do these things. It's a byproduct, a byproduct of what God has already done. I love others because I am loved. I am generous because God has been generous with me. I forgive because I have been forgiven. It really does change everything. And that, I think, in this season that God, I think, is really um, working in me and working in us as a church as God brings people in is we're wanting to learn what does that look like? This good news of what God is and who, he, and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how it affects us, what does it look like? How does that connect outside of just Sunday mornings into my everyday life as I live this out? What does it look like for me to love because I've been loved? Is there areas of disconnect in my life where I'm not responding in, in gospel ways? Is that because I'm not believing it? Do I not function that way? All of that stuff is, is coming, and that's what I feel God's wanting to let us spend a season of what does it look like to connect the gospel to everyday life.